This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 27th of August, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. To the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, if the Prime Minister is saying that we need to live with the virus, well, what have we been doing for the past 18 months? Is vaccination really the pathway out of this pandemic? And we have a look at what's been happening in federal politics. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Marxist proletariat discussing the dialectic. Thanks to all our new Patreon subscribers. Our last episode on Patreon talked about how the public service has been politicised. On our Patreon account, these are just short mini episodes. It's a little bit like getting a picnic as a reward. And there are two tiers of support available. $5 per month for our Ruby Standard supporters and $10 per month for our Gold Standard supporters. You can find all of the details on our website, newpolitics.com.au. It's a good way to support independent journalism. And as the Prime Minister would say... The invitation still stands. The door's open. So if you're ready to join the program, come on down, as they would say. I implore you to do so. Living with COVID is the new narrative being pushed forward by the federal government, but it's the narrative that is being used to cover over incompetence, mismanagement and placing vested interests ahead of the public interest. The states of Western Australia and Queensland have been reduced to cartoon characters and compared with cave people for not wanting to allow COVID into their communities. And it's like that movie in The Croods. People wanted to stay in the cave. Some wanted to stay in the cave. And that young girl, she wanted to go out and, and live again and deal with the challenges of living in a different world. Well, COVID is a new, different world. And we need to get out there and live in it. We can't stay in the cave and we can get out of it safely. That's what the plan does. And the state that has badly mismanaged the pandemic the most, and by far, New South Wales, they're the ones firing up this narrative the most, that we're supposedly having to learn to live with COVID because they've completely messed up the Delta strain and let it loose within the community. New South Wales now has over 1,000 daily case numbers of coronavirus, 14,000 active cases, and that's 94% of all cases around Australia. Should the rest of Australia pay for the mistakes of one state government or should we just all go out and have a picnic in the park? Once the dust has settled, I can't help but think that the New South Wales state government will be held very strongly to account. The government has been directly responsible for the Victorian outbreak, which is really heartbreaking given that Victoria had beaten it. Queensland is very worried New Zealand has 68 people from a visitor from New South Wales. Now, I'm not blaming that visitor from New South Wales. It was due to the lax, laissez-faire attitude of the New South Wales government that they were able to travel like that. It is astounding just how counter everybody else they're being. And I know we've said this before. We've probably said this for the last 10 weeks. But I'm still struggling to see the end game in this, in that who is going to benefit from a thousand cases a day indefinitely, closed borders indefinitely. Now, I know that the federal government, who is also equally to blame, 
wants COVID to settle into the community and that somehow will cope with a highly infectious disease, where some modelling sees three and 4,000 cases a day by November. I can't see how this helps any trade. It certainly doesn't help tourism. It certainly doesn't help business. And it certainly doesn't help the health system. We have the two worst governments we've had in a very long time, probably ever, really, in charge of the two most crucial areas, New South Wales being the gateway to Australia and the federal government. The litany of incompetence and wrong decisions will fill a book before the discussion. It's just insane. Well, incompetent governments can hang around for a long, long time and still have some sort of usefulness for the community and the community can still survive. But this is a different situation. This is a pandemic. You can't afford to have incompetent governments in office. And in New South Wales, there's 1,000 daily cases of coronavirus. And what we're getting pretty much is spin and public relations and hoping that this will all make the problem go away. There's a number of key messages that are being pushed forward by both the New South Wales government and the federal government as well. And a lot of these points that they're putting out are turning out to be not very true. So the claims that the New South Wales government was putting out that Sydney was having the harshest lockdown anywhere in Australia and possibly the world, now all of these have been proven to be untrue. And you sort of think, well, what else are they not telling us the truth about? The big message that they've been pushing out over the past 10 weeks, and this is coming from both the New South Wales government and the federal government, that Delta numbers cannot come down. Well, that's not true. In Victoria, the new case numbers today are 79. There's nine cases in the ACT and no other cases in the rest of Australia. In New South Wales, there are 13,395 active cases, 595 in Victoria and 254 in the rest of Australia. Now, nearly all of those current 14,000 case numbers across Australia are Delta. Western Australia and Queensland, they've absolutely smashed Delta, and so have a few other countries around the world. But in this situation, 94% of all cases across Australia are in New South Wales, and they keep saying that Delta is different, but the main difference is in the performance of these respective governments. Tasmania, Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia, they've all controlled Delta successfully. And Victoria and the ACT are doing well to bring those numbers down. It's the incompetence of the New South Wales government that has created this crisis. And they were egged on by Scott Morrison and they've failed. The communities in Queensland and Western Australia, they don't want to see what's happening in New South Wales happening in their states, and nor does anyone else. They feel that they've worked pretty hard over the past 18 months, as has most communities around Australia. They've worked really hard to get to the situation where they're in, and they're not prepared to accept this idea of living with COVID in the same way as the Prime Minister and the New South Wales Premier want to. I think it also shows that the Prime Minister, he's showing how insular his attachment to New South Wales and Sydney is. And it's almost like whatever is happening in New South Wales and Sydney, and, you know, we like to think that Sydney is the centre of the universe, and it probably is, but he wants to apply that to the rest of the country. But this will play out politically. It will probably have big electoral impacts in West Australia and probably Queensland as well. I I think it already has. Uh, The McGowan government's belting of the Liberal Party in the last state election. There's only two seats, I think, that the Liberal Party hold. Queensland, Anna Palaszczuk, came in with a fourth term, which is 
extraordinary and belted the Liberal Party. It was another landslide. I think Victoria, if I was a Liberal member in Victoria, I'd be updating my CV, rigging around my business contacts to see if there was any opportunities available because uh, I don't think very many will get through either at a state or a federal level. New South Wales is a little bit different. We've had a more sensible government than some of the opposition in Victoria has been. And that's not to say before people say, oh, what's happened? Have they sent him a check? That's not to say they've been good. But we haven't had that lunacy out of New South Wales in the way that the Victorian uh, Liberal Party has been. Pretty much if you can't guarantee the safety of a populace, whether through law and order, whether through military tactic or whether through health, and of course, economic safety is important too, you're really not fit to govern. And both the federal government, who threw away their constitutional responsibilities in quarantine, for example, and the New South Wales state government, who have been shown to have people in key positions who are incompetent and really unfit for the job, that's going to start to bite, I think. Sure, they're not worried about southwest Sydney because apart from the seat of Reed and heading towards Cogra, they're all Labor seats, so they're not going to lose anything. But they only have a two-seat majority, and those seats are pretty slim. So I think that it's already started playing out badly, and I don't think it's going to end well for them. Well, the good news is that from September the 13th, Families in southwest Sydney will be able to have picnic time of up to one hour. So that's a fantastic treat that everyone can look forward to. The mainstream media seems to have a different view of the world. And we've been quite critical of the mainstream media over the past four years, ever since we set up this podcast. And their behaviour is bizarre, if not predictable. The media conferences held by the New South Wales government, they're on at 11 o'clock every day. And for people outside of New South Wales, these are broadcast nationally, so you can watch them. I know that the people of Western Australia and Queensland, they're out and about and they might be too busy working away, but these are interesting to watch. In Sydney, on the day of 1,029 case numbers, the first question to the New South Wales Premier from a journalist was... Outdoor gatherings. Are we? Is does a backyard count for an outdoor gathering? And also, when people are in their outdoor gatherings, uh, do they have to wear masks? This is on a day of record coronavirus case numbers. Three people died. Entire families in southwest Sydney have COVID, where the parents are in hospital and their children are at home alone with remote support. And after 38 minutes of public relations fluff and expert filibustering. This was the first question asked of the New South Wales Premier from a journalist. There were also other questions about when can we travel overseas, when will restaurants and cafes open up. Now, to be fair, there were some questions asked of the Premier about hospitals being able to cater for an increase in COVID cases, but there's many questions of great concern about the hospital system that are just not being asked. And it's almost like the mainstream media is part of this stage show presented by the New South Wales government, and they've started off their picnic time just a little bit too early. The rumour was that she was going to open up hairdressing and beauty salons and that cabinet rolled up. If that's the case, then good on Cabinet for doing that. These picnics, how are they going to police it? And doesn't seem to me to be policy that's been thought through fully. 
just because you've been vaccinated doesn't mean you can't catch the virus. Are they going to have someone at the park checking everyone who's come in that they've got their vaccine certificate? If they don't and someone gets it, is there going to be legal culpability for the authorities who didn't pick it up? It's just way too early to be thinking about these types of restrictions. Well, I think it's mainly a public relations and political exercise as well. So Gladys Berejiklian, she did promise that after 6 million vaccinations have been administered throughout New South Wales. Now, why 6 million? There's no magic to this particular number, but she did say that there would be some sort of benefit. There'd be some sort of restriction that would be removed or something else would happen as a benefit to the community for reaching 6 million, this supposedly magic number. Now, that's all well and good. You've got to manage public expectations. You've got to put some sort of incentive out to people and I guess New South Wales Health possibly would have evaluated well what sort of scrap can we throw out to the public for achieving this magic number of six million doses administered throughout New South Wales what sort of scrap of incentive can we put out that doesn't actually create too much damage to public health outcomes and they probably thought well let's have a picnic and that's how they arrived at this very strange and possibly meaningless act of public benefit. And I wonder if she'll backtrack on it. One of the troubles with doing a weekly podcast, of course, is that things change. And what we record one day gets totally changed on the next. But we can look at it as moving history. But yeah, I'm wondering what changes will be quietly made on the weekend to these policies. Because they often do big announcements and, and small backpacks. Sometimes the press pick them up and rightly hold them to account for it. But often the press misses it because, again, other things happen on Monday which take them off the news. It's still a very strange uh, situation we find ourselves in. So we did criticise the media performance at those particular media conferences in Sydney. The criticisms that we need to put on the media go further than just the media conferences. The media is now fully behind Scott Morrison's push for this idea of living with the virus. The ABC, Sky, Channel 7, 9 and 10, they usually end their reports with a pithy little comment, this is what we have to do if we want to live with the virus. And here's a little snippet from Sky News. Experts have warned that herd immunity is no longer a possibility as the COVID-19 Delta variant continues to ravage every corner of the world. Herd immunity was once considered the go-to form of defense against COVID-19, occurring when a large enough proportion of the population is immune to a virus or disease, eventually leaving the virus with nowhere to go. Now, with the highly infectious Delta variant, experts say that while vaccines are still a fundamental part of recovery, they won't be able to completely stop the spread of the virus. The Delta variant is responsible for the worsening outbreaks in Australia, causing the current lockdowns in New South Wales and Victoria. Even the countries applauded for their hold on the virus have faced similar flare-ups. While herd immunity may be off the cards, vaccinations are still an essential part of recovery as the world continues to battle the Delta variant. And here's Jenna Clark. She's a commentator from Perth, also speaking on Sky News, wanting Western Australia to be ravaged with coronavirus what to do by those east coasters but uh, as for someone that ha who loves my friends my Australian friends all around the country I have to say to the Prime Minister where's the lie it's true we've been enjoying living in this cave for the past 18 months now and it's time to start living with COVID let's get vaccinated and let's get this show on the road and of course the question of living with the virus was put to the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk and she puts the entire issue into perspective 
Well, I'll just say this to you. Ha have a look out in Queensland at the moment. You can go to work, you can go to school, you can go watch sport, you can play community sport, you can go to a restaurant, you can go out. Um, we haven't given up. I mean, we come out here every day and Queenslanders are doing such a good job in making sure that when we go hard and, and go fast, people abide by what we're asking them to do. And, and look where we're living. I mean, you know, I think we've got to be a bit, bit realistic here as well, that um, we are in a unique position. Um, and if you think about it, uh, Victoria has got under their past outbreaks. And I don't think the people in New South Wales want to give up about getting on top of their current outbreak. We talked about this before. Well, the, the main outbreak is happening in New South Wales, and there's a little bit of an outbreak in Victoria, but the rest of Australia is COVID-free, essentially. So this idea of living with the virus, it is a message that the media is now fully supportive of. It's pushing this idea as much as possible. And commercial broadcasters, well, they can do whatever they wish to. They can report in whichever way they wish to, as long as they're not breaking any broadcasting codes or broadcasting rules. But should a public broadcaster, such as the ABC, be pushing pretty much what are government talking points in this particular way? As you've pointed out, we shouldn't have to live with the virus. It can be beaten. Till New South Wales gummed it up, Victoria had beaten it, New Zealand had beaten it, but we still have Western Australia with zero daily cases, Tasmania with zero daily cases, and South Australia with zero daily cases, and Queensland with zero daily cases. Taiwan has brought its cases down to six from 326 in April. Vietnam beat it. Singapore has beaten it. Now, it's not to say it won't come back, but this notion that we have to live with hundreds of cases a day that we have to live with it, that people will get it. No one has asked either Scott Morrison or Gladys Berejiklian how many deaths are acceptable. There's only one right answer to that. Now, with a lot of political questions, there are many right answers and many wrong answers, and some of the right answers can be wrong and some of the wrong answers can be right. But in this case, the only acceptable number of deaths from COVID should be zero. It's that simple. Otherwise, you're psychopathic murderers. We're not dealing here with a military strategy where you know you're going to lose troops in, in any kind of attack. We are dealing here with a manageable, a challenging, but ultimately, if you're prepared to put the hard work in, manageable situation. And yet they refuse to do it. And no one asks them why. Well, governments of all persuasions, they want to hide their incompetences or things they're not doing so well, and especially things that they're doing badly in. They want to hide that away. They don't want anyone to hear about that. So that's where it's up to opposition political parties to explore what they're doing. And then it's up to the media to find all of those inconsistencies and things that governments are not doing very well and report on that. That's what the role of the media is. But there just seems to be this massive dissonance between media reporting and community expectations. There's not much reporting on the hospitals that are being clogged up in southwest Sydney. There's not much reporting on ambulances being set up as triage and wards. The New South Wales health system, they'd be performing that as well as possible, but that's not the purpose of an ambulance to be set up as a triage or a de facto ward. In the media, we're virtually getting nothing at all on the reporting of entire families with COVID, their parents in hospital care or ICU. There was a story about one nurse who caught COVID at a Westmead hospital three weeks ago. She was then hospitalised moved to ICU and she's now on a ventilator, she was actually fully vaccinated. We don't hear these stories in the media. 
it plays against the narrative that everything's okay. The hospital system is in crisis. We are on the edge of the system breaking down. We saw in Italy and England they had beds in the car park because there were no beds left in the hospital. We saw stories of people being turned away, basically sent home to die because the hospitals in equally or bigger systems couldn't cope. The press have been holding Gladys to account in some. Andrew Clonell from Sky News has asked some fairly hard questions. One of the Daily Telegraph reporters has asked some fairly hard questions. But it needs to come from all of the press. Someone needs to say to them, why do we need to live with the virus? Gladys has told a whole range of inaccuracies, one that no state or country has ever beaten the virus four in Australia have, and then there's six or eight countries around the world that have, and there's another six or eight on their way to it, and then presumably there'll be others after then. She said New South Wales had the biggest population density in the country, which is not true. New South Wales's population density is 10 people per one kilometre. Victoria has 28 people per kilometre. These easily disproven claims rely on a media that's not really going to chase them up. And I will admit I may have missed where someone has held her to account on that. But nonetheless, she can say these things because she knows she can get away with them. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, we keep being told that vaccination offers the pathway out of the pandemic, but it could end up leading us in the wrong direction. government keeps changing its tune on the actions that need to be taken to manage this pandemic, but it's finally settled on the key message, for the time being at least, that the pathway out of the pandemic is vaccination. That's aside from telling everyone that it's time to move out of the cave. And vaccination is just one of the many tools, but all of the actions taken on by the federal government have focused on returning to the way society used to be before the pandemic. And that's because that's pretty much all it really knows. It hasn't got the creativity to imagine other possibilities. But history has shown that during a crisis, such as the Second World War or the global financial crisis in 2008, the countries that adopt innovation, research and development as their key philosophies, they're the ones that prosper the most and recover quickly from a crisis. The government keeps leaning on the Doherty Institute report and the two bands of vaccination rates, 70% and 80% of the adult population vaccinated so that they can implement the next two stages of opening up in Australia and ending lockdowns. But perhaps most of the government's problems and expectations about achieving these stages of the Doherty report are all based around the wrong assumptions that the world will return to the way that it used to be, when this might actually be a point that we can never return to. I think we're living through our generation's version of World War One. 
insofar as at the end of this, the world is going to be fundamentally different. World War I saw the end of the most monarchies in Europe. It saw a shift in wealth to other people. It saw a broadening in wealth to other people. It saw the old elites made irrelevant by essentially new elites. World War II, similar, except World War II really consolidated the elites that had come up through World War I. But World War I was a fundamental change in at least the West for how things worked. We won't lose any royal families, I don't think, because there's too few to lose. But I think the whole neoliberal idea is going to fade away very quickly. I think corporatism is going to radically change. The fact that a lot of people can now work from home results in lower rents, lower building maintenance, lower electricity bills. And I think companies are going to notice this and transition to a working from home model permanently with meetings once a week somewhere central to the workforce. I think we're seeing the end of the oligarchies that have run us for the last 30 years. Well, there is that adage that government should never waste a crisis, but it seems that after 18 months, this government is well on the way to wasting this particular crisis. Now, when I say wasting, I mean that it should give governments and the entire country as well an opportunity to reflect on what needs to be done for the future, analyse what the benefits could be when coming out of a particular crisis and looking at different ways of achieving what needs to be done in the best interests of the community. But I guess we've got a government that it's got a bad habit of serving its business donors and vested interests and it's finding very hard to break the habit. But this should be used as an opportunity to look at everything within the community, supply chain processes, income support processes, effective technology to manage contact tracing. Now, some of the contact tracing that has been implemented in Australia is working reasonably well, but all we ended up getting from the federal government was a useless COVID safe app. That's still actually being maintained as well, to to my surprise. It's, It's costing a fortune, but it's not actually doing anything. The Australian community had a de facto universal basic income system in place for nine months, and that propped up the economy. So these are all the ideas that could be reflected upon and utilised in the future. There's many, many key opportunities in manufacturing, digital and computer-based software services, including blockchain, agriculture, financial services, power and energy. Now, Australia is doing very, very well in mining and agriculture, but there's many other areas that it's falling behind in power and energy, climate change management especially. Australia should be a world leader in renewable energies of all types, but a lot of these areas, these are massive opportunities that are being ignored. This is a time when everything should be on the table, everything should be viewed as a possibility for the future, and to me it seems like these are the things that the government is ignoring at this point of time. There's too much interest from the old guard. The extractive industries, particularly coal and oil and gas, understandably, let's be fair, don't want to let go. And I suppose if you've invested billions of dollars to make tens of billions of dollars back, you would be reluctant to let go. Often the history of technology is the old guard holding on for as long as they can. For a while, it's successful, but after a while, it just crumbles away. If we look at the Industrial Revolution and and the Luddites, who saw the end of their livelihoods, but weren't inclined to retrain 
or weren't able to retrain. We're seeing that now, I think, in mining, in that a lot of the coal miners are very worried about retraining for other professions, even related to mining. Ultimately, history tends to be on the side of change. I nearly said progress, but it's not all progress. But history tends to be on the side of change. And you can either be agile and active and proactive and and work with that change, or you can try and stop it where ultimately you'll fail. And that's where we're up to now, I think. Education is one of those sectors that it's not so much that it's falling behind. Australia does have one of the best education systems in the world, and that's across the board, going from early childhood, primary education, secondary education, technical and further education, the university sector as well. But if you look at something like year 12 at the moment, there's a big push within New South Wales that the HSC exams need to take place. And when you look at it, it's a group of 17, 18-year-old students sitting in a room for three hours, writing with a pen and paper, scrawling their answers on lined paper and submitting it. And someone collects it and then assesses it. Now, this to me just seems like an 1850 sort of model. These are the sort of areas that could be revolutionised where education departments all around Australia and governments say, well, hang on, we've been doing this in the same way for the past 150 years or whatever it is, let's try something different. The questions that are prepared for the students for, they're currently doing their trial exams at the moment, but the questions that are prepared for them are are prepared on a computer, but yet they have to write down their answers on a bit of paper. Exams are not the best way of assessing someone's intellectual abilities anyway, but this is another lost opportunity. There's this push towards just doing the HSC exams in their current format. This is against all sensibility, but it's all based around big education, the industry of education as well. That's an area that could be revolutionised at the moment, but it's just being left to the way that it used to be before. In no professional field are you locked in a room with no resources for three hours and asked to answer questions about that professional field. Could you imagine being a doctor? Well, we have all these patients, doctor. We've written them all down. We want you to go in there and write down what you think should happen for the next three hours. You won't be supervised. You can't ask for help, and you will have no resources. Oh, by the way, while you're in there, six of them died. It's a ridiculous concept. When I was lecturing at the universities, I didn't like setting exams. I much preferred assignments, which were a much more practical way. The whole Industrial Revolution model of children turning up at 9 o'clock and following a fairly strict timetable till three o'clock with their mandated breaks at 11 o'clock and one o'clock or whatever. I know it's different from each school. Makes no sense in a modern context. I don't quite know what the solution is. I'll be fair here and we'll get a lot of comments about that. But I do think that a change needs to happen and a change that works for most students. It's not going to work for all students, but the current system doesn't work for all students. And we've had a few queries this week about the Doherty report and the questions have been, well, how much should we trust the Doherty report? And I do like the way that people think that we're experts on epidemiological research and reporting. So that's fantastic. Should we trust the interpretation of the Doherty report by governments? Well, probably not. 
There's a whole lot of issues that arise from government funding of reports such as these. The funding and the research that they generate, usually these sort of reports are vexed. There's millions that is being funneled into the Doherty Institute as part of the Melbourne University. It's always going to be a compromise. The Institute has to balance how much compromise it is willing to accept, provide the government the news that it wants to hear, maintaining its integrity and keep that money rolling in. So... That's what these sort of uh, research reports that are commissioned by government achieve. They're meant to provide the government with the information that they want to use to support their political agenda. That doesn't mean that the Doherty report is bad, but it is being misinterpreted by the federal government. And there's quite a few examples of this sort of process as well. KPMG, the accounting firm, they're the go-to institution for government interpretation on economics, and they usually provide the information to governments that they want to hear. And since 2007, it has received $2.2 billion in federal government contracts, or $150 million per year. So they usually provide the information that the government wants to hear. Why rock the boat of a good revenue stream by upsetting your biggest clients? So it's that combination of not compromising too much on the values of that particular organisation, giving the information that the government wants to hear, but also giving the information that the public wants to hear as well, and continuing your revenue stream as well. I think it's good that private experts are brought in from time to time to help shape government policy because there's just some things that governments can't understand. So you bring in private people to say, well, what's it like in this industry or that industry? And you can get a full full and comprehensive idea of things that you might know about or things that research hasn't been done in. Or, But the whole 80% thing, is only 80% of eligible vaccinated people, which works out to about 56% of the population, which is nowhere near enough a vaccination rate. The ideal number is 90 to 95%. Now, there's going to be people who are refusing vaccinations. I guess that's their right. I don't think it's a very smart option. Pauline Hansen says, I've got the right to catch the disease, and that's my choice. It's not your choice to spread it on to somebody else. It's like the whole smoking thing. It's my right to smoke till it affects somebody else. No, it's like drink driving till you kill three other people in a car accident or one other person in a car accident that's not yourself. It suddenly stops being an issue of choice and freedom, whatever that is, and becomes an issue of responsibility. And it's the same with vaccination. It's not about cowing the population necessarily. But it is about making sure that the disease stops spreading. The thing with vaccinations is that it's not the only way, and in fact shouldn't be the only way, to stop the disease. First line of defence is quarantine. Both quarantine as in things coming from outside or people with the disease coming from outside, but also lockdown and isolation. Following then, you have masks and social distancing. I should also add, I'm not making this up, I'm getting this from epidemiologists. And this is how they've beaten it in everywhere else in the world but New South Wales. Vaccination then comes in when you've got it down and the vaccinations can take hold. But we're using it as a first step. If you get to 3 million or 6 million, we can maybe start to think about loosening restrictions. Trouble is, with the infection rate at over 1, that means people are still getting infected. And it's growing logarithmically, as we've seen this week. 800 at the beginning of the week, and yesterday was over 1,000. I think we've got to 
really look very carefully at what Doherty says and then look at what the government says and see where the, what the difference is. So good public health outcomes, they do just depend on good public health messaging and communications as well. So if the message is vaccinate, 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 this is the way that we get out of the pandemic, and then that doesn't happen, people start asking, well, why do I have to wash my hands anymore? Why do I have to still wear a mask? You told me that we'd get vaccinated and we'd have to drop all of those things. And here I am, I've got my double dose, and you still want me to wear a mask. So that's where clear public communications public health communications comes into this. And my feeling is that it's not really being well managed at all by governments. It's almost like saying, well, look, get this done and then everything will go away. It's also a case where the Doherty Institute report might end up being the biggest lever used by an Australian government to go down the wrong pathway. And it's because the government doesn't know any other way. They want to go back to the way of of the old world. That might still be a possibility, but it's almost like they're just not exploring new options. The Prime Minister keeps saying that the COVID zero state is now impossible in Australia, which is not actually true. But maybe he should be preparing the public to say, well, a return to the ways of the old are impossible. We'll never hear him say those words, but it probably would be more effective and more honest. This is harsh, but I don't think they're capable of honesty. I think that they have their, whatever their outcome is, and that's not clear. That's the only option they are going to, and they do not care what it costs or the damage it will do. And I I hate saying that. I'd like to be able to say, look, there's probably a strategy there that we can't see that's going to work out for the best. But the evidence of the whole government since 2013 has not been that. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Now, of course, there's always something happening in federal politics. Federal Parliament did sit this week, the House of Representatives, and there was one question that came in from the member for Grey, that's Rowan Ramsey. He actually asked her Dorothy Dixer, that's when a member of the government asked their own side a particular question, and he asked the wrong question in question time. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Um, My question is to the Minister for Employment, Workplace, Skills, small and family business, who is my new neighbour up here. Uh, Will the Minister update the House on how the Morrison government is providing critical support for small businesses through the pandemic and why sticking to the national plan is so important to the recovery? I've asked the wrong question. My question is to the Minister of Education and Youths. Will you please update the House on how the Morrison government is sticking to the national plan and supporting students? You've asked the question. I'm going to call the Minister for Small Business. And, uh, well, thank you, Mr Speaker. Yes, it's uh, probably, probably the clear, clearest illustration that it's not a question without notice, but anyway. If there was ever an example to show how bad question time is and how much it needs to reform, that was the moment. What a sideshow we saw in Parliament this week. A government's only as good as its members. And while I know that there are some very hardworking backbenchers out there, there's also some seat fillers. And this is clearly one of those. 
that you couldn't even get. And mistakes happen, sure. But to not be able to get the right question in your big moment, now he won't be asked back for a long time. (laughs) The speaker will be told, don't pick him, pick someone else. And I suspect to a lot of backbenchers are only going to get one question now. We need a clean out of parliament. We need to find decent members. I'm starting to think that the big salaries... I remember being told years ago by a senior member of the Democrats, no, the big salaries are something we'll keep because if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. I think we've got monkeys feasting on too many peanuts, really. So we have to really reform somehow how you get it. I don't think the answer is in tertiary education for parliamentarians. Our greatest prime minister, or at least one of the very greatest, was a train driver, but understood how the system worked. We've had printers. We've had farmers. We've had quite a few lawyers. It's not about what you do, it's about how you do it. And we need to really think about now, how are they doing it and how can we fix it? And there's also the news of Craig Kelly joining the United Australia Party. For those outside of New South Wales, and as I said before, New South Wales and Sydney are the centre of the universe, Craig Kelly is the member for Hughes. He was a Liberal Party member up until earlier on this year. He's the person that's been posting anti-vaccination material on Facebook and social media, and he was disendorsed by the Liberal Party. He's decided that he will stand at the next election as a member of the United Australia Party, and that's the political party supported by Clive Palmer. He paid $80 million during the 2019 election to support the United Australia Party. They didn't win a seat, but they influenced the outcome of the election. Will lightning strike a second time for the United Australia Party? If the best you can do is Craig Kelly... And presumably you put your most qualified and best person as the face of the party. They're in dire straits. Craig Kelly was Scott Morrison's hand-picked candidate. To call him unimpressive doesn't quite cover it. There's all types of stories about his background, and and I don't know how many of them are, are right, and I don't want to discourage good people from similar backgrounds going into politics. But certainly... He couldn't even hold on to a seat in which the Prime Minister of the country guaranteed for him. The rumour is that Mick Fuller, ex-police commissioner, will be parachuted into that seat for the Liberal Party. I don't know that that's true either, but I've heard that round the traps. That will be interesting. But I, I don't think Kelly has any chance of winning the seat back. He'll get 500 primary votes from the anti-vaxxers, maybe and then be preference last, I suspect. It's pretty funny in, in a sense, and it's, it's very sad on another sense. There's also another member of the federal government. He's a member of the National Party, David Gillespie. He's a doctor, and he's come out criticising the Aboriginal community across Australia for low vaccination rates, and he's been blaming them for vaccine hesitancy. Now, Indigenous people all across Australia, they were meant to be in the 1A zone and they were meant to be the first group of people to receive their doses. But now in Wilcannia, that's in western New South Wales, there's an outbreak amongst the Indigenous community. 
and David Gillespie has been at the forefront of that criticism and other people have joined in the criticism as well suggesting well how hard is it to rock up into town and get vaccinated but it's not so easy indigenous people find it hard to access mainstream medical services because of racism historical and cultural issues We've always maintained that the government has failed many, many communities and many groups of people on the outer of society. They've really let down the Indigenous people all around Australia as well. Well, Kenya is six hours northwest of Dubbo. Dubbo is five hours northwest of Sydney driving. That gives you an extent of how badly bungled the New South Wales government has. Well, Kenya is in really the middle of nowhere. It's... A tiny place. It's a it's a great little town, but it's a tiny place. The fact that there's an outbreak there speaks volumes to the incompetence of the state government. Now, one of the things too I think can be said about indigenous population is that a great many of indigenous people don't trust government for very good and historical reasons. And that's another reason why I think the vaccination take up has been slow. Historically you can understand this. And it goes back to bad government messaging and uncaring government messaging. And I'm not talking about the actual people on the ground who are trying to get it through, but I'm talking about the leadership of the state. It's just awful. And one of the things that was very apparent was that we had to keep it out of Indigenous communities because the various health issues that they already have will compound. Yeah, so unfortunately, the Indigenous community, certainly the one in Wilcania, that's been left behind by the government. It gets back to what we were talking about before, that the government makes all of these promises, but it doesn't carry through with those promises. Indigenous people all around Australia, they were meant to be in the 1A zone of vaccination. They were meant to receive it first, but they haven't. That's another item to add on to the long list of failures performed by the federal government. You'd think that they'd learn one day, but maybe they're just not a government that can learn. It's not the ability of learning, it's the not wanting to learn that I think is the issue. We have to get rid of them. We have to rebuild the Liberal Party in New South Wales so it has decent people. And by decent, I mean competent, compassionate, (laughs) non-lunatics who actually want to work for the whole of the country in whatever way they see fit, but not working for a tiny minority of people who don't need the help or who shouldn't need the help. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.